Hello, everybody. This is Admiral Jamie Fogo from the Center for Maritime Strategy at the Navy League of the United States in Washington, D.C. You're listening to Maritime Nation, a podcast designed to dive deeply into the policy challenges facing America's sea services and the role of the United States as a sea power on the global stage. We will continue to provide you with high-quality analysis of the most pressing maritime security challenges by joining in conversation with key experts and practitioners. I'm joined here today by my colleague, Mike Stevens, CEO of the Navy League of the United States and the 13th Master Chief Petty Officer of the Navy. Wow. And we also have former Master Chief Petty Officer of the Navy, Big Pond 12, Rick West with us today. Gentlemen, it's a pleasure to have both MCPON 12 and MCPON 13 in the studio today. We are calling this episode Three Chiefs because many may not know this, but I myself am an honorary Chief Petty Officer and I wear that title with pride. The Master Chief Petty Officer of the Navy is a role that is probably not as familiar to those outside the sea services as it is to those inside the sea services. It's a comparatively new position uh, based on the fact that the Navy has 247 years under its belt because the rank of MCPON was first established in the United States Navy in 1967 under then-CNO David McDonald. Increasingly, it was felt that there was not enough representation of the concerns of enlisted service members to senior leadership within the Navy. So the MCPON role was founded to be a spokesperson representing the issues of enlisted members. The MCPON is the highest ranking enlisted role in the Navy, reporting directly to the Chief of Naval Operations. It's the equivalent of a Vice Admiral or a three-star, and it's significant responsibility. So to kick it off today with three chiefs, I'd like to talk about how all of our paths crossed over time in the United States Navy, and our total amount of service is about 104 years. That's, uh, that's pretty significant. For Pond West, and ladies and gentlemen, today we're going to go by first names. So it's uh, Rick and Mike and Jamie. Rick and I overlapped at the Pentagon when he was Pond 12, and I was director of the Navy staff. But a long time ago, we served together on SSN 664, the USS Sea Devil. Well, he was an E-5, a petty officer second class, and I was a lieutenant junior grade way back in the early 1980s. There are some incredible uh, sea stories from that ship. And uh, let me just stop right here and turn to Rick uh, for any memories that you might have of uh, USS Sea Devil. Over to you, shipmate. Hey, Jamie, thank you very much and for the kind introduction and having both Mike and I here today. Yeah, I got to tell you, that was such a great learning ship for us. And, you know, when you start looking at leadership, and you'll talk about this, I think, a little later, uh, you you know, you only had to look at USS Sea Devil on the waterfront down in Charleston. It was a a tough time. Uh, We were always gone uh, doing the nation's bidding out there, uh, you know, against all that would be bad. But uh, I got to say, I mean, I think the med run that uh, I was on first, but the the one that really struck to me is that northern run, and, and I'm, I see you're going to talk a little bit about that to the North Pole, but when you look at leaders, and you'll, we'll, we'll talk about John Bird and others, uh, Rich Mees, but uh, man, I, I learned a lot as a young sailor, but also as a leader uh, on board that ship. 
Thanks a lot, Rick. And you're right. Uh, <clears throat> you know, in front of me here in the studio, I've got a picture from uh, 22 June 1985. And it's a picture of the wardroom of USSC Devils surfaced the North Pole with the uh, Fairwater Plains in the ice pick condition. The commanding officer, uh, Commander Rich Meese, who later became Admiral Rich Meese, a four-star, is wearing his uh, Royal Navy turtleneck uh, from his time on exchange over in the UK and looking pretty dashing. And, uh, you know, it sits on the shelf of my library and reminds me about uh, a great warship, a great wardroom, a great chief petty officer's quarters, and uh, a great crew. And at that time, uh, Sea Devil was uh, a boat that, that did its job. Um, Admiral Meese wanted us to get underway on time. He wanted us to come home on time, if necessary, take other missions for ships that uh, couldn't make it out due to maintenance, and uh, return to our families with all our fingers and toes. So, you know, no uh, untoward incidents or accidents on board the ship, and I think he delivered. When I got there in 1983, uh, just prior to uh, my arrival, one officer, uh, Mark Kenny, had just left the ship. But in that time I was on board, if you count uh, Mark Kenny in this crowd, there were six flag officers on that ship. Uh, it was Admiral Meese, uh, Admiral Phages, uh, Admiral Byrd, Admiral French, Admiral Kenny just before my time, and then I was the, the runt of the litter coming up. We also had a Royal Navy exchange officer, uh, Commander Stanhope, who later became the first Sea Lord, and of course, Rick, yourself, as an E-5 quartermaster, who later became the Master Chief Petty Officer of the Navy. So uh, you're right that uh, Northern Run up north was not only exciting, but it was it was challenging in a day of no GPS. And you were a quartermaster, so you know this better than anybody else. You know, uh, Lieutenant Commander Byrd, later Vice Admiral Byrd, uh, was a pretty conscientious navigator, and he had very high standards. And he was worried about the ship's inertial navigation system. And we couldn't get navsats up there, so we relied on the old Mark 19 gyro, which I think you guys used to refer to as an old army tank gyro to keep us on a dead reckoning course, but you got us to the North Pole. And I remember uh, taking a mid-watch with uh, you and the others on the quartermaster team one night trying to find a place to come up. I couldn't find, uh, I was a JG, so I was, uh, you know, stringent in the requirements, had to find the ice that was thin enough for us to get through. And I think I circumnavigated the world about 12 times, and I don't know how many Americans can say that, but that was pretty cool. So when I turned yeah. over to uh, Admiral Byrd in the morning, I remember going down for breakfast and uh, and then hearing, ice pick, ice pick, ice pick. And I think it was that uh, legendary Chief Johnny Logan that was uh, was a diving officer. He later became uh, a Master Chief and a Cobb himself. And uh, he positioned the boat, and we went into the vertical position on the Fairwater Plains. And uh, Commander Byrd gave the order, Captain on the con, to uh, blow our ballast tanks. Nothing happened. Do you remember that? Uh, I do. I do. That was a pretty tense time. But, uh, you know, like anything, we got through it, right? Yeah. Yeah. So uh, they took a risk. You know, they said, uh, OK, normally we don't uh, blow the after ballast tank, but, uh, you know, we try to protect the rudder and the screw. And uh, as soon as they put air in that tank, uh, the rudder acted like a can opener and just cracked the ice and we popped up. And then we had uh, 24 glorious hours uh, up there at the North Pole. Uh, the memories I have are you know, hitting golf balls at the North Pole. One of the big mistakes we made are uh, do not hit a white golf ball because you'll never get it back <laughs> at the North Pole. Take range balls that are yellow or whatever other color, but uh, it didn't work out so well. And then uh, that notorious uh, senior chief radium in uh, Bussey, 
who brought a fifth of bourbon with him. And we can say this now, and uh, nobody had a drink on the ship, but I think everybody got a, uh, you know, a little, a little uh, sip of bourbon in the igloo bar that he made at the North Pole, and uh, that was really cool. I also remember uh, Admiral Meese being very proud of the fact that, uh, you know, he was a wrestler at the Naval Academy. I think he was an All-American, and he put on his uh, wrestling sweatshirt and took a picture at the North Pole for uh, Coach Peary, who was a legendary wrestling coach of the Naval Academy for decades. And, you know, at the time, uh, I think the Navy's mantra was, it's not just a job, it's an adventure. And that was uh, one of the greatest adventures of my life. So what did you think? Well, absolutely. And if you if you don't mind, I'd like to talk a little bit about these leaders. Uh, you know, first of all, Mies, and you kind of referenced his his big kind of World War II sweater, uh, British sweater. Uh, you know, he, he was the epitome of, of a darn leader. Uh, and it's because he had high standards and he held you to them. But more importantly, he, he, he was he had enough leeway to allow people to have some fun and, and kind of, you know, move about and do their thing. The funny thing about him, and you alluded to the fact that he was a wrestler. Yes, he was. And our XO, as, as you remember, uh, Dave Kekolin at the time. Yeah. He, he, he was Great a boxer. <laughs> and I think his fists were probably big as basketballs. Uh, it, it's just amazing. But it was not uncommon in me being in the firing line in the control room to either be put in a full Nelson uh, by, uh, you know, <laughs> Rich Mees as the commanding officer or uh, just a nice love tout from the XO as he'd come up and hit you in the shoulder. And maybe that's the reason I, I kind of hit hard today is because, you know, you had to fend for yourselves up there. But those two guys were uh, just a great team. And, uh, you know, it, it was that synergy that you talk about. And they set a really positive tone. Speaking of tone, I, I know we talked a little bit about Bird and French, and I worked with both of those guys as the navigators uh, when I was a QM. But Bird, he came in and relieved what we had was somewhat of a weak uh, navigator. A nice guy, nicest guy in the world, but the guy was a little bit weak. And Bird came in, and he immediately set a tone. He set the standards high. We knew what they were, and he held us to them. And I know we're going to talk about others a little later, but, uh, you know, Bird is the one that when QM2 West and QM2 Rose at the time got just a little too cocky, I'll never forget. He called us down in his stateroom and, uh, you know, he, he gave us the right amount of wire brushing, uh, yeah. but it, it, yeah. it kind of puts you on a path. And I, I know we're going to talk a little bit about the others, but. I, I really, really like this. I think one of the things that struck me uh, with Mies and set the tone, we had pulled into a port. I, I, I forget where it was. It might have been Belgium or, or, or Germany, but he ended up putting the chief's, chief's mess on uh, basically secured their liberty because they weren't qualifying diving officers. We had a great chief's mess, but, it, you know, it was they weren't doing what they were supposed to do. But, you know, that resonated throughout the crew. And when you start talking leadership, it's those examples that really, I guess, motivate others to do a, a heck of a lot better. So with that over. Yeah, that's, uh, that's a fantastic story and uh, rendition of uh, true leadership on USSC Devil. And I do remember that port visit uh, when the chiefs were held uh, to a very high standard and told, uh, you're not going ashore until we get some people qualifying. And we had some people qualify pretty quickly. Uh, and, uh, and they're, and very competent, you know, uh, individuals. It just, uh, 
it took a little bit of a push uh, to get him over the top. And I think we had 100% on that watch bill after that particular port visit. So that was great. And you mentioned uh, Rick Rose. And both of you guys made uh, QM1 at the same time. And when I left the boat, you know, I had no idea if I'd ever see either of you again. Uh, loved you both as quartermasters, and you were you were very complimentary, but you're two different kind of cats. And if you fast forward to uh, 2007, 2008, when I was working as the executive assistant to the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Admiral Mullen, the first thing he told me when I came on board is, when I take uh, the oath as the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, you're going to have my boots on the ground the next day. Well, I didn't quite make it, but about three days later, uh, we landed in Kuwait and we got into a Black Hawk helicopter and we proceeded to Camp Bukha in Iraq, where there were something like 25,000 detainees, people who had uh, minor offenses uh, during the American uh, occupation there and uh, people who had major offenses that were members of Al-Qaeda. And so this helicopter is coming down, you know, in the desert, sand flying everywhere. The door goes open, they kick me up. And I wasn't accustomed to wearing, you know, 90 pounds of uh, Kevlar and kit. And so it, I was a little bewildered as I kind of wandered from uh, underneath the rotor blades. And this guy comes up and almost does a football tackle on me and gives me a big hug. And when I raised, uh, you know, my ballistic eyewear and looked at his name tag, it said Rose. And uh, that was Master Chief Petty Officer Rick Rose, who was the command master chief of all the individual augmentees at that camp. And he said, hey, sir, well, the chairman goes off with uh, Major General Stone to do his thing. Why don't you come with me and I'll show you how this camp works. And we saw this video called Seven Minutes Behind the Wire. And it was, it was like a war for the Americans every night just to contain the detainees and, and give them food, you know, so they could continue. It was just absolutely amazing, but a great testament to the versatility of a chief petty officer. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I also went to Buka a few times um, and saw Rick Rose over there. We're still friends to this day. Uh, he was one of those guys that when you really break down the term shipmate and call someone a shipmate, you know, I think of Rick Rose because he was always there to raise his hand, raise his hand for Camp Buka, totally out of his his environment. And, and that was a tough, tough uh, environment to be in. Uh, I, I, you know, to this day, I'm at all in awe because of those guys and, and what all of those sailors did over there and what they put up with. So, yeah. And, you know, it's funny, you mentioned that Rick came out and gave you a big hug. Uh, you know, that's kind of what we do, right? We're, we're it, it's, it's hard to break that bond from those that you've served together and went through as much as you have together, you know, at sea. Uh, cause as you know, at sea, that's a, that's a tough environment to be in. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of bonds that have been forged uh, from many sailors. And, you know, it's just great to hear. It's a great story. I actually, uh, you probably know this, but I, uh, I officiated Mass Chief Rose's retirement down in Kings Bay. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, he, he was a good man. He asked me to come down and do it, and there was no way that I would not. Uh, you know, it's just one of those guys. He was always there for me. And by golly, you know, you want to always be there for, for those type of people. Fantastic guy. And uh, if you run into him, please uh, give him my best. Now let me turn to uh, Mick Pond, Mike Stevens. Uh, Mike and I met when he was on active duty 
is our MGPON number 13 and uh, as successor to MGPON West. Uh, Mike came over to the theater while I was in Naples and, uh, you know, as Sixth Fleet Commander, and we later interacted when I was the director of N81 and the deputy director of N35 uh, Strategy Plans and Policy in the Pentagon. It's one of my favorite jobs. Uh, he's always a professional and always a champion of the troops. And it shows uh, in his leadership here as the chief executive officer. And if you think about that, you know, from E1 to MCPON 13 to being a CEO of uh, an incredible nonprofit with 30,000 members around the country, uh, that story is just amazing. So I'm going to ask Mike to tell us a little bit more about his naval career. Uh, he actually hails from uh, a Native American reservation in Montana. He is not a Native American, but he lived amongst Native Americans. He went to school uh, with uh, those young Native Americans, and he grew up in a pretty austere environment. So, Mike, uh, can you tell us how somebody from a landlocked state developed a love for the sea? Well, sure. Um, first, um, let me just say thank you to both you and Rick for the opportunity to participate in this podcast. Um, I hold uh, both of you in high regard. One of the hardest things that I had to contend with as the Mass Chief of the Navy was following Rick West. Because arguably he was <laughs> one of the most popular, if not the most popular, Big Pond, you know, in the history of the office. And I think largely because he interacted so well with sailors, um, they could relate to him. Uh, he always offered great advice and just, uh, you know, tremendous leader. And then coming in behind him was no easy task. And all I can, all I can hope is that I was able to do half, if, if I was lucky, do half of what he did when he served as the Mass Chief of the Navy. And then, Jamie, your, you know, your reputation precedes you. As I wrote in your charge book, and you, you don't typically say what you put in a charge book, but the one thing I did put in there is that um, you were highly respected and regarded by sailors and families because of the way that you interacted with them. Regardless of the rank you held, um, you could always have an honest conversation with a sailor. And so to be here on this podcast with both of you is, um, is truly an honor. You'll have to forgive me because it's been 40 years since I've uttered any Salish. But, uh, you know, which means hello, welcome in Salish, and then in English to the Maritime Nation podcast. Right. So, you know, Jamie gives me a hard time once and says, hey, you need to speak some Salish. But I'll tell you, it's been a long time since I've done that. Um, that's OK. And that's great. Now, Salish is the uh, uh, the language of uh, I think you called them uh, the Flathead right. Indians. And that's the reservation that you right. lived on. Right. Yeah, I, I was transplanted as, <clears throat> as at an early age into the uh, Flathead Indian Reservation as my uh, as my parents bought property there when I was you know, four or five years old. And we. We moved a few miles from uh, where we lived in Montana to the Flathead Indian Reservation at that time. And one of the, you know, one of the fun things about going to that you know, school, which was there on the reservation, is through your elementary years, you had to participate in, uh, in Indian studies as a non-Native American to go to that school and then be immersed in that culture. And at the time, you really don't think too much about it. Because, you know, you're young and it's more of something you have to do than something you want to do. And then as you get older, uh, you recognize 
you know, just how unique that experience was and, uh, the, and the opportunities that were presented. So I'll be clear, I'm not a Navy speaker in Salish, but um, you know, when you live around uh, a particular group of people, just like when I lived in Rota, Spain for four years, you pick up some language, uh, you know a few words here and there. So I just wanted to uh, say welcome and hello to our listeners uh, the best I can. And I'm, I'll probably get a hard time from any of my Salish friends for attempting <laughs> to do that. <laughs> I, think, I think that's great, especially uh, you know this uh, past month as we celebrated uh, the passing of uh, one of the Navajo code talkers in the Marine Corps. And those guys were just uh, heroes out in the, uh, in the island campaign in the Pacific. And uh, certainly uh, an extraordinary part of our heritage as Americans. And you lived and were friends with the Native Americans when you grew up. And I just think that's really cool. And I wanted to highlight that for our listeners. The other thing that, uh, you know, Mike did while he was uh, uh, early on in the Navy is you served in a career in aviation. You were on uh, CH-53s, mine-sweeping tankers, you know, out during the tanker war in the first Gulf War. And uh, later on, we'll talk about, uh, you know, some of your really uh, high-tension experiences on USS Tripoli. But, uh, you know, you, you explained to me a little bit about what it was like to be hanging out uh, the rear of that aircraft and pulling a sled and uh, setting off mines during the tanker war. And that was extraordinary. So can you, can you tell our listeners, uh, you know, how that contributed to your formulation uh, later as a chief petty officer, master chief petty officer, and then MIGPON 13? Yes. Uh, thanks, Jamie. Yeah, it's, uh, it's interesting where we come from. And I know, um, you know, I've, I've talked to Rick um, about his upbringing, too. You know, and Rick's a, a Georgia boy, and both of us kind of came from uh, small means. And the Navy provided us with tremendous opportunities uh, that we would have otherwise never had, both in experience and education. You know, you fast forward the tape after a couple tours of duty, I find myself as a second-class petty officer, um, at Helicopter Mine Countermeasure Squadron 14, which is a uh, airborne mine countermeasure squadron. And the interesting things, the thing about, uh, you know, mine warfare is it seems like about every 20 or so years there's a need to do it. And in between that time, it's just training, 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 training. And so I get to the squadron, I'm there for just maybe a year, and we find ourselves in the Arabian Gulf uh, in an actual conflict where live mines are in the water. And some of the, some of the men that I was flying with at the time had been in that, in that squadron 15, 20 years training. And so after 20 years, uh, they find themselves in that experience. And, you know, young me, I'm there for a year and I'm in that experience. So it just goes to say, you never know when it's going to happen. So all you can do is be prepared, whether you train for 20 years or six months, um, you have to be ready. So we were, you know, we were, we were operating out of, uh, out of um, Dubai for a while, and then we embarked on board the USS Tripoli. And when we got on the Tripoli, we find ourse found ourselves pretty close to the coast of uh, Kuwait, and the Iraqis had laid a um, considerable number of mines. And what we learned, you know, after towing in these minefields, that the best thing that we could do is find them, know where they're at, and then try to avoid them. But every once in a while, you'd cut one, cut a moored mine, or you'd find a moored mine. And uh, the best way we found it to destruct those mines is to get a hold of EOD. They'd either go out on a rib boat or we could drop them 
out the back of the helo and they would do what's called pouncing the mine and they would set explosive on the mine and then they would get picked up either by a rib or by a Jacob's ladder out of a helicopter and you'd get a fair amount of standoff distance and then you would detonate those mines to try to get them, you know, get them out of the, out of the way so that ships could do their business, especially at that time, the USS New Jersey, which was going back and forth along the coast of Kuwait, launching, you know, Volkswagens <laughs> into the coastline. But then uh, in mid-February, um, we found ourselves in an extraordinary situation for reasons I still don't fully understand because I've read many stories about it and there's different versions of it. But all I can say is that the decision was made to move the ship at 4.30 in the morning and we were in a mine-laid area. We had cleared a section where the ship could, could essentially drop anchor. And we had a Q route that went into that section. And so the captain, for again, for reasons I don't fully understand, but certainly for the right reasons, decided the ship needed to be moved. And so as the ship was moving, unfortunately, there was three mines uh, in our path that were chained together at different depths. And we hit the chain and one of the mines swung around the starboard side of the ship and struck the starboard bow. Jeez. And, uh, you know, where, blew, where were you on board at the time? I was in my berthing. Our berthing was uh, right at the waterline. Wow. Um, and we were several frames back. But when the mine struck, uh, it blew a 20 foot hole in the side of the ship. Um, you can see the pictures online. It's pretty amazing the devastation that, that it created. Fortunately for us, because it was 4.30 in the morning and it hit the uh, the bosun's locker, the paint locker, nobody was in there. Wow. But there were people up working that were nearby. And we're talking flammable material in that locker. Flammable material. Um, I can remember after we hit, it's just the chaos that ensues because yeah. the, the concussion of the blast knocked the boilers out. And so we lost all power, lost all lighting. Jeez. And uh, if sailors ever want to know why you field day the overhead, just hit a mine and see how much dust comes down. <laughs> or anything else, right? <laughs> or anything else, because it really blackened us out. So you hear people kind of moaning and groaning and struggling to get out of the racks. And, you know, there's there's water coming into the ship. Um, we're going through the scuttle one at a time. Eventually, our compartment completely flooded. When we were able to get back to the ship and get our stuff out of the locker once it was uh dry docked. Everything we had was completely saturated in oil and water. Wow. So that compartment had completely flooded at some point. Luckily, we got out of there before it did. Um, but I can remember coming up and just amazing to see the damage control team with all their gear on running past us as we were getting to our battle damage station, or I mean, our, uh, our, our battle stations on the flight deck, because I was a crew chief. My station was a helicopter but this damage control team is running by us and without having any idea what they were going into, they ran, they went down the ladder wells and into that explosive environment as sailors were coming out of there covered in paint and fuel um, and shock. They were coming out of there and they were going in there. As it was later determined, um, you know, one of the warrant officers that went down there with the crew uh, received a silver, or I think it was a bronze star for his efforts uh, but um, they, they, they saved the ship because we were at abandoned ship um, positions at one point expecting that we may not, the ship may not stay afloat. But because of those heroic efforts of those young sailors, those chief petty officers, that warrant officer, they're able to contain the damage and save the ship. 
to fast forward the tape, we stayed on station for 10 more days and conducted minesweeping operations before we ended up pulling anchor and uh, in steering speed at about five knots, I guess, worked our way back to Jabal Ali where the ship got dry docked and we cross-decked over to the New Orleans and continued to, to operate off the coast of Kuwait. Wow. I mean, just think about that, a 20-foot hole in the hull and you stay at sea. First of all, you save the ship. And uh, the role of the non-commissioned officer uh, cannot be underscored enough there. The leaders that are on the deck plate with those brave sailors that are, you know, putting the fire out and stopping the flooding. And then you continue the mission. It not only is a great testament to what we're talking about here today to chief petty officers, but also to our industrial base uh, to build a combat-capable platform that can take a hit and keep on going. Absolutely amazing. Now, if you contrast that, Mike, and Rick with uh, the Russian flagship Moskva, I think, and I don't know, I wasn't on the Moskva, but hit by two air-breathing cruise missiles. Um, They had the capability to defend, but they didn't. And then once the damage took place, uh, they were unable to put out the fires and stop the flooding, and they lost the ship. And the difference between them and us is the leadership on the deck plates, and that comes from our chief's quarters and our chief petty officers out there. So I think that's a, a great testament to what we're talking about here today. And thank you so much for uh, sharing that story. Now, uh, you guys corrected me uh, the other day when we were talking about this. Uh, you know, September is uh, uh, typically chief's month. But uh, we're going to do the uh, CPO initiation and pinning ceremonies this year in October all around the world. And that's when uh, CPOs change from their Cracker Jacks uh, to khakis and don the fouled anchor of a chief petty officer. It's, uh, it's a huge event for uh, the Navy, for the chiefs, and for their families. And to me, it's a little bit like the transition from uh, 06 or captain to flag rank. So... Uh, Mike and Rick, can you explain uh, for the wider audience what, uh, you know, your work as MCPON 12 and MCPON 13 uh, to make this transition for our young uh, E6 petty officers to E7 to chief petty officer, how that works, and uh, how CPO 360 worked on your watch? Let me, let me start with MCPON 12 in chronological order. Rick, over to you. Roger that, Jamie. Thank you. Hey, first off, I'd like to say all those kind words that Mike laid out earlier, they could certainly go the other way and do. Uh, Mike and I have a great relationship, and I think that was part of the, the process. I was very lucky to have him as a fleet mass chief. And it leads right into this, CPO 365. You know, it was, it, it, I think it's one of the things that every Pond struggles with and every leader struggles with in the CPO mess to some degree. But I think after my first year in the office, you know, after we saw the CPO incident starting to rise and uh, the fact that when we had that first year CPO uh, induction initiation, um, what I saw, I said, man, we, we got to take a reset here. And, and what I did see was, is as I walked about the fleet, uh, you know, I, I saw that everyone was relying on these six to eight weeks uh, too much, in my opinion, to make someone from an E6 to a chief petty officer. 
And I think it's part of the process, but it can't be the sole process. So, you know, bouncing things off Mike, uh, Scott Benning up at the NPC, uh, we kind of come up with this thing called CPO 365. And one of the things also that jump started that for me that year, I think about 50%, at least from what I saw of the chiefs, you know, you, you, you do the PRT right off the bat, uh, we're struggling and that's, you know, it's half the mess. And then the final thing uh, that I saw was I had felt at some point we had probably walked away from one of the most important or eased away from one of the most important things a chief petty officer does one of, and that's training our junior officers. There was a definite gap. Amen. Amen. So CPO 365 was put in place to be a continual process, a training process. You know, I, I didn't want to, uh, you know, give them a, a model of exactly how to do it, but we gave them guidelines about how to do it and said, get to it. And I think the fleet overall did a pretty darn good job. Uh, you know, we started tracking incidents of chief petty officer, chief petty officers, uh, you know, but the other, the other thing that, uh, you know, that eight, six to eight weeks, right. You just can't focus on that. Uh, you've got to be better than that. And we need to be bringing not only the E5s, E6s into training every now and then, but those junior officers, and I'm not saying every training, but let's make it a continual process. And I think, I think when we, we, we first rolled it out, you know, there was some kickback, but that's okay with anything. Uh, you're going to have kickback and you just kind of keep through it and hammering the message out uh, to those. And I think everybody embraced it. And then, you know, as I left office, and I think even as Mike left office, they shifted over to something called CPO or Sailor 360. Uh, I, I still am very fond of the CPO uh, 365. I think there's a, there's a place for it. It's funny. Uh, the MCPON prior to me, they had an incident at one of the boards, I remember, and I was one of his fleets and we were talking about it, but they kept moving the pinning date for all chiefs. And it was a huge mistake that we did that because all it did was confuse the fleet. So I would always go back to our chiefs messes and said, hey, I don't care if the results come out on the 15th of September you better be ready to pin on the 16th of September. And that's really, uh, I think, you know, kind of was the essence of CPO 365. It, it was a lot of work from a lot of people. Um, and, you know, I'm one of those guys, I think we should kind of have uh, uh, that back uh, to some degree. I don't think, I don't think we abandoned it completely and Mike can probably uh, lay more out on this, but uh, I think there's always a place for CPO 365 and, and the deck plate. And we, we can talk more, but I'll give Mike a, a volley here uh, because this is a topic that, man, it just kind of hits, hits right in my uh, my heart, right? It, it's, it's something we need to be focused on. Mike, over to you. And so when I became the Mass Chief of the Navy, it was really with CPO 365, it was, it was a continuum of what had started on Rick's watch. And it was really just to continue to professionalize um, the chief's mess. I, I want to be careful and I want to be clear when I say we often, when we do something like this, where it can be insinuated that the chiefs that came before us weren't doing it right. And I don't believe that's the case. I, I believe that um, the ch chiefs that came before us were the absolute best chief petty officers in the world for the time that they served. 
but we all have a responsibility to continue to evolve um, as leaders. And, and likewise, I would say the chief petty officers today are the best chief petty officers in the world. Um, we did what we we did the best we could at the time that we were serving. They're doing the best that they can, and we continue to evolve. So it's not about, you know, better or worse. It's about being the best that you can be for the time that you serve. And so this was just an evolutionary process. And, you know, when I got in, we, you know, we dialed it up a little bit more. We changed, we changed some things um, in the process um, even how we named it, we got away from the word uh, CPO induction and we went purely with CPO 365. And that's something that Rick and I actually talked about when he was the MCPON. And the decision was made that, hey, let's do this in iterative steps. And, you know, that next step was the decision that, that I ended up making. But it's certainly one that we had discussed um, beforehand. Again, I just wanted to thank Rick for, you know, having the courage to make that initial step. I'm grateful to have been to have had the support to continue that, and I can see, you know, through McPawn Smith, and that I'm sure through uh, McPawn Honia, they'll continue to evolve the process. But Jamie, you and I have talked about this. It's, um, you know, CPO initiation, CPO induction, CPO 365. There's some traditional elements to it, and the one thing we all have to recognize is that if there's conflict between our traditions and our values, we have to ask ourselves, what do we change? The tradition or our values. And I think in every case, we'll make adjustments to the tradition or the process. Absolutely, Mike. I couldn't agree with you more. And, uh, you know, at the time that I became a, an honorary chief petty officer, uh, it was uh, gratis of uh, Big Pond 14, uh, Master Chief Giordano, who had been the uh, Fleet Master Chief at uh, Naval Forces Europe before he became MCPON 14. And uh, that happened just before I went up to uh, CPO uh, initiation uh, or, you know, 360 at a heritage site in Boston, Massachusetts, uh, on board the USS Constitution. And I will never forget that. So when I got up there, uh, you know, I, I hung out with the uh, – CPO initiates, and uh, everybody that was on board uh, got a vessel to put a charges book in that was made from the recycled wood. We just overhauled the uh, Constitution uh, to make her look brand spanking new, and all that uh, old wood was down the dry dock, and they cut it up, and they used the old copper off the hull to make this vessel, and I have it with me here today. And then uh, my flag writer at the time, uh, Chief Dempson, gave me a charges book, and when I went up to do the khaki ball on the Constitution, uh, everybody that was uh, becoming a chief signed that book for me. And Mike, you've signed the book, and I want Rick West to sign the book when he comes to uh, D.C. And I'm sure there's a, a price I'll have to pay for that. But uh, that was <laughs> that was that was a wonderful time in my life. And you know, uh, I mentioned uh, Chief Dempson, who later became Senior Chief Dempson. He was my flag writer for four years. He served with me in Europe unaccompanied uh, for three years, did a masterful job, and is now serving as the uh, senior chief flag writer to Admiral Chaz Richard at Stratcom. And uh, my hope is that uh, he'll one day be a master chief like you two guys. But uh, Phil Dempson put an excerpt in my book. Uh, he wrote a nice note, and we don't talk about those notes, but he put an excerpt from a retirement speech from uh, Command Master Chief Welch, Chris Welch, who served in the Navy from June 1982 to July 2016. And I want to read it uh, to the audience here because it's about 
chief petty officers. And uh, Command Master Chief Welch said, quote, the chief is like a lighthouse. Its one job is to watch over the safe transit of all around it, to warn of shallow water, and to guide to safe harbor. It is always there, but no one thinks about the lighthouse until there is a storm. And then it is the first thing a sailor looks to, to gain their bearings. As you're aware, I've worn these anchors for nearly 25 years, and I can tell you that there have been changes over the years. However, there is nothing wrong with that because through it all, chiefs have still stepped up to heed the call, to lead from the deck plate, uh, to make difficult choices when necessary, and meet that critical leadership gap between the wardroom and the crew's mess. Chiefs don't run the Navy. They make the Navy run, exclamation point. The strength of the chiefs is in the brother and sister sitting to your port and starboard, the links in the chain that wraps itself around the anchors that we proudly escort daily. Command Master Chief Chris Welch. I think that says it all. And Wow. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I, I just, I love that excerpt. And thanks to uh, Senior Chief Dempson for, for putting that in my charges book. Uh, yeah, see... A, a, Jamie Senior nailed that. I, I think that's such a great thing. I would say though that uh, there's one point in there about not thinking about the lighthouse. Now you're talking to a quartermaster by trade, right? So <laughs> I, I thought about lighthouses often. Uh, to Mike's point though, too, and, and it rings true in what you just read. Uh, you know, when you talk about the cheese mess, yeah, it, it, it's a continual process. We've got some great chiefs out there doing great things. Our sailors, in my opinion, have never been better. You know, we can easily point fingers at them, but at the end of the day, you know, we have three pointing back at us as leaders, right? So we have to kind of take charge of that and, and do that thing. But wh what a great thing. And you brought up the Constitution. Uh, I had the opportunity, like Mike and others, to go up there. Uh, if you haven't been up there as a sailor, you should, just to see where we're what it, where it all started. Right. But the, the sailors that, yeah. the sailors that man that ship, uh, they're just phenomenal. They're young. Sometimes we pull them from, uh, right out of boot camp to go do that. But you know, it's a great, uh, great platform. And uh, every time I go up there, I get chills. Yeah. And, uh, secretary of the Navy just installed our first, uh, female commanding officer of constitution. And, uh, everybody's very proud of that. Let me shift gears here, and I want to talk about an iconic figure and somebody that Mike is very familiar with and that Mike recognized uh, posthumously in the United States Navy, and I'm going to let him tell that story. And that's about the first McPon, a trailblazer named Delbert Black. Uh, Mike, can you tell us a little bit about that story? I, I believe you're talking about the ship, right? Right. Yeah. So it's, um, it's something that um, we've worked hard at for many years is to – um, get a ship named after the first Master Chief Petty Officer of the Navy, Del Black. You know, Del was a Pearl Harbor survivor. He fought um, through the Battle of the Pacific. Uh, I, I believe, you know, if I remember everything that I've read, um, he was on two different ships that had uh, taken torpedo strikes. Uh, and he was just a, um, the epitome of a quiet, humble servant leader. And so being chosen... 1967 is the first Master Chief Petty Officer of the Navy, and his wife uh, 
some will say that and when we chose him, we also chose I'm a black. Yeah. She's a force to be reckoned with as well. Uh, yeah. Right? I met her. She's amazing. <laughs> On several occasions, the office of the Master Chief Petty Officer of the Navy, has, we've made attempts um, to get a ship named after Mick Pondell Black. You know, as we all know, it's a very difficult thing, especially a destroyer. There's lots of uh, input, a lot of people that are trying to get that ship named after a particular person. In the case of enlisted sailors and Marines, um, I also believe if you do some research on it, you'll find that all those ships that were named after them were um, as a result of them being Medal of Valor recipients, typically Medal of Honor or or uh, Navy Cross, Silver Star. Uh, and so we knew it would be an uphill battle with Del Black because he had not received Medal of Valor, although he was the first Mass Chief of the Navy. And so through a lot of encouragement from the other Mass Chiefs of the Navy and some great work from the staff, I, I give a lot of credit to the staff at the time when I was serving in that office and with the um, ultimately with the support of um, Secretary of the Navy, Ray Mabus, uh, and uh, also from uh, the director of the Navy staff at that time, which was Admiral Scott Swift. Because the first go-around, it was recommended that they name a supply ship after him. And we, believe it or not, we turned that down. And when we turned that down, we had to start all over. And so it was uh, a two, two-and-a-half-year effort. And then I'll never forget getting called down to the secretary's office and him sharing with me that the decision has been made to name DDG-119, the USS Delbert D. Black. Outstanding. Good for you for perseverance. So uh, we're, we're very, you know, very proud of that ship. And even, you know, Dell would say, don't be proud of the ship, be proud of the sailors that serve on it. And so we are. We're, we're proud of the sailors that get to serve on that ship, and we know that it's out there doing our nation's business. Outstanding. Uh, Rick, did you ever meet Dell Black or I'm a Black? Oh, now Dell, I have not. It, uh, I actually went out to be Force Master Chief in the Pacific Submarine uh, and I had just missed him. He had came out with IMA. He was uh, obviously retired then. But, uh, I mean, everything you read, like Mike said or hear about him, it's just incredible. Now, IMA, uh, I mean, that's a different story completely. She's incredible. I've met her many, many times. Uh, still in contact to some degree. You know, I, I you know, don't try to bug her. She's almost 100. Wow. It's not 100. Wow. Uh, yeah, yeah. And, and she's still... Uh, just a ball of fire. So I would tell you, you know, a running gun and destroyer named after a Mick Pond is absolutely uh, phenomenal. Mike did a great job. Like you said, his staff, we couldn't, we couldn't do our jobs as Mick Pond without our staff. So they're just awesome. But uh, what a fitting, uh, you know, namesake. And I will tell you those sailors on board that ship, they're very loud. They're very proud and, uh, you know, it kind of resonates across the waterfront. So every chief petty officer in the Navy, every single one of us, and those retired and coming up should be very proud of that ship. It's, uh, right. it's just absolutely incredible. Yeah, and, and, and Rick, I better correct the record because I, I probably, you know, didn't say exactly what I was thinking. But, of course, you know, be proud of the ship, but be equally, if not more, proud of the sailors because I know those sailors are proud of that ship. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. What, what a great honor and what a great job. And uh, kudos to you, Mike, and the team that, uh, that stuck with that to get DDG-119 named the USS Delbert Black. Hey, 
Hey, shifting gears, uh, you know, Mike and I and our uh, responsibilities uh, with the Navy League uh, spent a couple of days down in Orlando uh, two months ago for the uh, Navy League National Convention. And uh, Mike put together um, a, uh, a breakfast symposium with uh, Fleet Master Chiefs. And uh, Master Chief uh, Jamie Hurdle came from CENTCOM. And uh, he joined the Navy in 1989. I was commissioned in 1981. And he's an EOD guy, uh, no surprise, uh, being the uh, Fleet Master Chief for CENTCOM. And uh, all the people that trained him were these uh, gnarly, you know, chiefs and uh, warrant officers from the Vietnam era. And every new generation that comes in, mine included, you know, we're, we're told, uh, you guys are ruining our Navy. You, you don't know what you're doing. You have different standards. Your standards are not our standards. They're not high enough. And I can't believe you guys and the things that you believe in and the stuff that you do. And it's just terrible. Now, every generation hears that. And I'm sure that uh, the young kids that are coming up today are getting a little bit of that. But from uh, MCPON 12 and MCPON 13, I'd like to hear from you about uh, you know, what you think about talent management. What do you think about the capabilities of the young people who are either thinking about joining the Navy at the uh, tender young age of 17 coming out of high school or anybody else that's thinking about a shift into the Navy. And how are we doing uh, as an enlisted force out there? I'll, I'll go in chronological order. And Rick, let me start with you, Mick Pontwell. Roger that. Well, let me say you're, you're talking to a guy that was 17 year old from the northwest corner of Georgia, had never seen the ocean. And uh, why to this day, I thought it was a good idea to go submarines. I, I don't know, but uh, you know, it was one of those decisions that I've never looked back. I, I think the enlisted force now is absolutely incredible. I think one of our challenges though, and, and please, if the audience would don't turn off your mics when you hear what I'm about to say, uh, I, I would say one of the things that we have to start doing is, you know, I, I never have liked the term taking care of sailors. Now, there is a point in time, like you do your, your children at home, that yes, you've got to get them through boot camp and get them on board the ship. I'm a big believer that you, you have to take care of their families, but at a certain point with those sailors, you have to challenge them. And, uh, you know, I think that's what they expect this day. You know, everybody talks about, it's funny, I was even talking last night to a, a master chief that's in about the, you know, the sailors that are coming up now. And I, I think that they're absolutely phenomenal. I think they've got a lot of savvy to them. We just have to challenge them to be better. It's kind of like a ball team, right? You play to the level of those around you. And I think the leaders, the leaders on the deck plate, you know, we need to be focused. We need to be making sure that we're, we're making things very challenging for them, but it also kind of that learning process as you bring them up because you know, if you if you if you just take care of them, there's a point in time that uh, they're going to just continually expect you to do what you need to do. And I would say for the leaders out there, you know, our first priority, obviously, is what Mike talked about with Tripoli. It's war fighting. You know, we got to be war fighters. We got to be out there getting those young men and women motivated to fight that war, fight the prolonged war, and do the nation's bidding. Uh, every single day. And I think, you know, you do that through, uh, you know, many things. And we'll talk probably about that a little bit later, but there's just so much you can do as a leader. Uh, I'm reading a book now. Uh, it's called Extreme Ownership. Uh, it's, I don't know if you've heard of it. It's Jocko Willink. 
Uh, he was a SEAL commander. Oh, but I'm going to get it. That sounds great. It's a good book, and he talks about ownership and about being a leader. So I really put a lot of focus on our leaders on the deck plates. You know, if you're the CEO, you own it. And then all those leaders below you own their piece of it. I think sometimes if we get astray or those that do get astray, they're not focusing on their piece. They're looking at other things, right, that they don't really control uh, on the deck plates, but I'll turn it over to Mike. This will be an interesting conversation, I think, because you can tell, I mean, this one's really got me flowing here. <laughs> Outstanding, Mike. Well, I'll use, I'll probably get in trouble because I'll use two words that are pretty volatile. It's, uh, you know, political and media. And, you know, if you, if you pay attention to the political environment and you listen to everything that's being espoused on the the media, you would think that our country and our youth are lost. Um, you just hear this all the time. And, and I would say that neither of them are true. And I'll speak specifically about the youth. Amen. I all, agree. You know, all you have yeah. to do is, you know, for us, go to RTC Great Lakes, do like I did a couple of weeks ago, go up to the Senior Enlisted Academy, where those chief petty officers and senior chiefs are up there are the same age as my son. And what you'll find is that the level of commitment and dedication is as strong as it's ever been in the history of our of our Navy, of our country. And I'll also say that they're smarter, uh, they're quicker, uh, and they understand the current dynamics far better than I did when I was serving. And even to some degree now, the, the understanding that I have now, I think we can give ourselves um, great hope knowing that we have this tremendous generation that I'd like to hope that in some way Rick and I and all those that served when we served are somewhat responsible for because it's a generation that we help to train. And I'm sure that they'll do the same thing and be able to say the same thing that I'm saying today. Outstanding to both of you. Um, You know, and that uh, Fleet Master Chief Jamie Hurdle retired and he turned over to my former Fleet Master Chief, Derek Walters, who was... uh, the first SEAL to become a Fleet Master Chief of a Navy Component Command. And I know Rick and I have talked about there There was a previous SEAL uh, who served in UCOM, but uh, uh, Master Chief Walters was the first of uh, Naval Forces Europe. And it was great traveling with Fleet Walters because he is the spitting image of Vin Diesel. I mean, this guy is buff. And when we go through an airport or something like that, people would come up to him and go, it's Vin Diesel. And he had a great sense of humor, and he kind of played it up. But as I know, I'm a, I'm a master chief petty officer in the United States Navy. And he would have these conversations with the troops that were uh, honest and self-deprecating. Like, I never forget, he was talking about uh, you know being a basic or buds, and he almost failed swimming. And he persevered, and he got through it, and he passed the, you know, the last possible test, and then becomes you know, a fleet master chief of SEALs. And he can swim, and he is lethal. And great guy. I just loved uh, serving with him. You know, I want to shift gears here to, uh, we talked about CPO initiation. I had the pleasure of doing a couple of uh, speeches out at uh, Naval Forces Europe and Africa for CPO initiation. And I always like referring uh, to the book Legacy by James Caird. This book is about uh, the world champion rugby team in New Zealand. Uh, the team name is the All Blacks. 
And it was recommended, the book was recommended to me by General Neller when he was commandant of the Marine Corps. It was on his reading list. And it was because, you know, you can become a world champion or you can become the greatest, you know, force of warriors in the world like the United States Marines. But in order to stay at the top, you've got to work even harder. And that's what the book is all about. And uh, I'll just tell you, one of the chapters I referred to is uh, about an all-black named Greg McGee. He grew up in New Zealand on a farm with his family, and his uncle was a huge rugby fan and loved the All Blacks. And one day he asked Greg, Greg, do you want to be an All Black? And the answer was, yes, Unc, I want to be an All Black. And his uncle got a little mad at him. He said, no, Greg, you don't want to just be an All Black. You want to be a great All Black. And uh, I think that's the message that we want to pass on to our uh, chief petty officers who are going to be uh, pinned in October. It is uh, not sufficient to just be a chief petty officer. You want to be a great chief petty officer. And when you become a member of the world champion rugby team, the All Blacks, they give you a leather-bound book. And in that book, like the books we have here at the Navy League, there is a history of the institution. It talks about the early days, teams over 100 years old, the greatest players, the world championships, the falls from grace, um, some of the uh, incredible plays uh, that were made by previous All Blacks as you come on board the team. And then the last uh, you know, 25 or so pages in this leather-bound journal are blank. They're blank because each player that comes on board that team, just like each chief petty officer that pins on those anchors will write his or her own history from here on out. And I'm reminded by one of my favorite movies, and that's Saving Private Ryan, when Tom Hanks, in his last breath, uh, turns to Matt Damon, Private Ryan, and says, earn this. And so that's my message to future chief petty officers. And uh, I want to give Mick Pond 12 and Mick Pond 13 the last word. We'll go in chronological order as we have throughout the podcast. Rick, over to you. Jamie, those are just great, uh, great relationship books for a chief petty officer. I would tell you, when you talk about the All Blacks, you know, there's a lot of people that don't like them. Like them or not, uh, they're successful, and they're successful through their actions, right, and their leadership. So it really does uh, resonate. I also want to, if, if you don't mind, since this is the last word, you talked about Fleet Nashie's Hurdle and Mass Chief Walters, two fine Americans, great men, great leaders. And let me tell you, I'd serve alongside either one of those warriors either, any day. And we have so many of them, though. That's what's, uh, that's what's refreshing. When you look across our great Navy uh, and you look at the chiefs coming up, the sailors, here's what I'll say. I think we have the finest Navy that we've ever put to sea today, right now out there doing our business. And, you know, when you, you also gave a call out to the industry base, I, I agree. You know, they're out there engaged as well. I think the biggest thing we need to do is make sure we, we get the technology to the sailors and make sure they understand the technology so we can even be more lethal uh, when we're out there. You know, you talk about the book or the movie Saving Private Ryan and Earn This. I mean, that is one of those moments. It, it'll, it'll make your eyes uh, well up. And uh, it's incredible. I actually give out every year. Uh, I'm pretty big on Facebook still and some of the social media venues. And like Mike, uh, many people reach out to us to come speak or 
uh, you know, hey, do you have a charge? And I, I have a charge that I send out every year. Obviously, we can't get to everyone. But when COVID hit, I think I did probably 75 at least, if not more, uh, Teams meetings or Zoom calls to Chiefs messes across the world. And that was a great thing, right, to be able to do that. But one of the things I write when, when I send this to those folks is, earn your anchors every day. When you pin those anchors, uh, you know, on, on your collar, you know, make sure that you take a good hard look in the mirror. And, you know, I have this thing that I would tell the messes all the time, and I call it the mirror test, call it whatever you want, but there's two times every chief petty officer or every leader for that matter, uh, you know, looks in the mirror for sure. And uh, I would tell you that in the morning, as they're getting ready to go to work, they should be in their mind going through all the things that have they done everything they could to make their sailor successful for the day. At the end of the day, though, is when you really need to be critical uh, of yourself, right? And you need to be able to point out your shortfalls because, you, you know, every leader has shortfalls and you just have to work on them and keep charging through them. Uh, I would also say being a leader at sea, uh, you know, there, there, there's all these talks and books about leaders and such, and I get it, you know, but being a leader at sea, uh, you know, things are always in motion, the people, the machinery, the sea is unforgiving, and you have to continually think ahead of the problem. So it's a tough environment for us all to be in, and that's why it's so important for not just the CEO to be that one that takes extreme ownership or total ownership, but it has to be all those under him or her uh, that does that and, and you know, kind of moves everybody forward. I think, you know, they got to do it with some enthusiasm, uh, you know, but the forceful backup piece and, you know, to me is critical. There's so many things, but, uh, you know, it's, it's incredible what we do. Uh, for those that are not familiar or as familiar with the Navy, or if they just see things that they see in articles, until you go out and experience and see your sons, your daughters, your nieces, your nephews out there operating that machinery, until you see it, you can't fully understand it, but it's absolutely phenomenal. I love our Navy. I love our cheese mess. It's just incredible. And, you know, our sailors that man those ships, yeah, put me in, coach. <laughs> Outstanding, Rick. Mike, over to you. Uh, yes, let me start by uh, saying thank you, Jamie, for setting up this podcast. This was 100% your idea, and to provide Rick and I an opportunity to pontificate, um, we're grateful for that. Uh, I think Rick would also, he would agree that once you're provided with this unbelievable privilege, because that's what it is, it's just a privilege to serve as the Mass Chief of the Navy, um, you almost, you know, there's no contract, but you agree to continue to serve as long as you draw breath. And although we're not in uniform, we're still serving. Um, we're serving by speaking to audiences, to our sailors, by participating in events. It'll continue for as long as we're willing to do it. I'd also like to say that, you know, uh, that I'm privileged and blessed to have served for 33 and a half years, and next year will be my 40th year of service. Uh, I joined the Navy in June of 1980, 1983. Just virtually or almost everything I learned has transcended into the, my, my role in the private sector. 
And I'd like to just take this opportunity to give a shout out to the amazing men and women that I get to serve with right here at the Navy League, both here at the staff and the volunteers, because they do, they're, they're not serving in uniform, but they're, but they're serving because that's what we do here at the league is we serve those that serve others. And in particular for us, it's the sea services. And I learn so much from them all the time. And we have some that are more senior in time and we have some very young employees and I learn equally as much from all of them. Um, so I just want to acknowledge that. And then I'll just close by saying this to our audience, whether you're a chief petty officer, an officer or a leader in the private sector, you know, I, I use this term, this definition that I refer to as what should a, le a leader be? And I say a leader should be a quiet, humble servant leader. Quiet doesn't mean we don't communicate. It just means we let our actions speak louder than our words. Humility doesn't think we mean we think less of ourselves. It just means that we're always thinking more of others. And to be a servant leader means that we recognize that the more senior we become, the more people we serve not the more people that serve us. And, you know, I, I have not run that by Rick, but I know Rick well enough to know that uh, I don't think he would argue with that because that's the mantra that we live by. Yeah, well said, Mike. Mike, that was absolutely fantastic. And what a great way to end. And uh, ladies and gentlemen, let me just tell you that it's a pleasure to be here uh, with Mick Pond 12, Rick West, Mick Pond 13, Mike Stevens, who is also the Chief Executive Officer of the Navy League of the United States. And uh, we hope that all those new Chief Petty Officers and all of our sailors and all of our friends out there, active or retired, will log on to www.navyleague.org. And for 25 bucks a year, you can get an electronic membership and you can subscribe uh, online to our magazine, Sea Power, and also to all the publications and the Maritime Nation podcast from the Center for Maritime Strategy. We serve uh, the enlisted service members, uh, the chief petty officers, uh, the officers active and retired of the United States Navy. And gentlemen, it's been such a pleasure to do this uh, session, Three Chiefs, with you today uh, and to explain from your perspective how the MCPON advocates for our sailors. This episode has been produced and edited by the Center for Maritime Strategy and the Navy League of the United States. A special thanks to our sound engineer, James Peterson, for making this recording possible. You can find this and future episodes on Apple and Google Podcast, as well as Spotify. We welcome your feedback. Have a great Navy day, and congratulations to all our new chiefs this coming October. Go Navy, beat Army.